This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, the whole scenario. Starts off with a little flirting in the kitchen at work, maybe at some Friday night drinks with the colleagues. Before you know it, in a full-blown situation with your colleague. Nobody knows, but do they really not know? Also, what is the boss going to say if they find out, oh, work romances? It's tough. We're going to be getting into those in a bit. If you have been through it, you know that it's a tricky thing to negotiate. We've got a relationships expert on to answer some of the big questions that people have. Also, tough new rules are being brought in for buy now, pay later services like Afterpay. If you use them, what's it going to mean for you? Is it going to have much of an impact? First, though. Hack. It's not just one person they've got. They've got a syndicate in probably every state, on every airport, in every port. On Triple J. You know, Australians are the highest per capita users of cocaine in the world. More than 4% of Australians over the age of 14 used coke in 2019. How wild is that statistic? And Aussies pay some of the highest prices for cocaine in the world. But how does this trade work? Who are the dealers? How are they operating? And these massive drug busts we sometimes see in the news, what kind of an impact are they actually having? Well, the ABC's Four Corners has a big investigation into this. Reporter Mahmoud Fazal has had unprecedented access to those involved, the dealers. It's so interesting. And he's with us now to explain. Mahmoud, welcome to Hack. Thank you so much for having me. Just how big is Australia's cocaine market? Well, Australians, as you said, are among the highest users of cocaine in the world on a per capita basis. And the country is one of the most attractive markets for the drug, given uh, the high street prices can be up to six times more than what's what you pay for it in the US or Europe. In terms of usage, though, um, cocaine in Australia uh, has increased by about 68% in four years. And cocaine syndicates are attempting to supply more cocaine to that demand than has ever been the case, according to the ACIC. So the number of cocaine detections at the Australian border have increased by 447%. Wow. Um, yeah. And between November and February this year, authorities seized about seven and a half tonnes of cocaine destined for our market. That's about three tonnes more than the previous annual record in just four months. That is wild. So this is growing really quickly. Do we know how widespread it is in society? Like, is this something happening at all levels behind closed doors? I think I think that's what initially interested me in this story, is that cocaine as a drug kind of subverts the, the public imagination stereotype of the drug user and drugs in general. Like w- during our investigation, we heard from a professor who took cocaine while doing her taxes and uh, a private school mother's club who would regularly go out for wines and lines. And we spoke to senior cocaine traffickers who um, had been selling the white powder to surgeons, judges, professional athletes and others for more than 30 years. So it's, it paints this really uh, 
interesting picture of the people we're kind of told to aspire to all consuming this drug. But um, overall, statistically, the demographic of Australian users of cocaine is broadening. So what was once a drug that was something of a status symbol for the elite has become normalised across almost every socioeconomic demographic, but particularly in the middle classes. Interesting. I mean, you've been speaking to people on the inside of these operations, Mahmoud. Who are they and and why did they agree to talk to you? Well, we wanted to include voices from all corners of the cocaine supply chain, people who had been affected by it in different ways. But I spoke to cocaine traffickers in three states. Yeah, we met Outlaw Motorcycle Club members, but also really savvy businessmen who were just treating it as a way to supplement their income. There's so many people you've spoken to for this story. One of them is a a dealer you spoke to. Her name is Remy. Uh, Here she is describing how easy it is to get caught up in this world. It's an addiction. The money's an addiction. The lifestyle's an addiction. You can have girls that you want. You can have nice, shiny things that you want. You can have all the things that you're told that you can't have. I drive past my old high school and laugh all the time because not one of the teachers that told me I wouldn't be shit is in a car half as nice as mine. Not even half as nice. So it's it's an ego thing. When you come from nothing, it's, it's about making something. Mahmoud, can you explain the chain of command here? Like the dealers that people might be encountering in nightclubs in the streets, where do they sit in the whole operation? Well, the the street dealers and people in nightclubs are really the lowest rungs of the supply chain, like retailers dealing directly with consumers. That's not to say they don't have connections very high up the ladder, but often they are receiving the lowest returns and dealing with product that's often the most diluted. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking to investigative reporter Mahmoud Fazal about this huge story of his out today uh, on the ABC's Four Corners, taking us inside Australia's cocaine market. Mahmoud, where is the cocaine coming from? Is that clear? The majority of the cocaine is coming from Colombia via Mexico and it kind of bounces around ports around the world until it gets here. There's a lot of stuff coming from our Pacific neighbours in Indonesia and uh, the islands such as Fiji. But it's really driven by our demand and it's a demand that's being met by a production surge in Colombia and Peru where coca plant cultivation has actually increased 50% over the past five years um, according to the Australian Federal Police. The access that you have to these dealers is extraordinary. Like, they're telling you all kinds of things. They're telling you how they're cutting or diluting the coke that they're selling. What kinds of stuff did they tell you they're mixing into the cocaine? It really varies. Um, Some dealers will use risky substances like speed, meth or even fentanyl and that's why it's often advised to test your drugs before you use them but other dealers use safer cutting agents like inositol creatine or even crushed up panadol rapid Um, it really varies so much across the board so it's always best practice to to test and the interesting thing here that I, you know, found interesting when I was reading it is some of this is to rip off clients, but also some of it's to rip off other dealers, right? It's all about maximising profits, but uh, these dealers 
do often rip each other. So we hear from a drug runner in the program who actively sets up other dealers. Uh, he works within a network of mid-tier suppliers. And while I was actually with him, someone offered him uh, A-grade ounces for five and a half thousand dollars, when the going rate is actually between seven and seven and a half thousand dollars. So he knew he was being ripped. So what he did was he organised for some of his younger crew to set up the deal. So he could rip them before they ripped him with the diluted cocaine. So he armed up his younger crew, gave them guns, and they stood over the cellar for the product and he split the ounces and took half. It's like something out of a movie, honestly. The stuff that you've encountered while reporting this um, that people have no idea is happening behind the scenes. Were the dealers that you were speaking with using the drugs themselves? Yes, almost uh, every dealer I spoke to did use cocaine themselves, um, some recreationally, but uh, the runner I just mentioned was using quite heavily. Uh, he would snort an eight ball a day, which is roughly a $1,000 a day habit, which, you know, led him to making these decisions and being the most volatile, violent and arguably the most reckless. And are they scared of being caught? They're all wary of being caught, but there's this saying uh, among serious players in the drug world, prison isn't part of the plan, but it's part of the game. So I think there's an expectation that they will be caught, but of course um, many aren't apprehended because it's just so rampant. Yeah, there was this quote in there that really kind of highlighted just the kinds of risks about how they're prepared to gain everything or lose everything, really. Like, that's the mentality. What did you find out during this investigation, uh, Mahmoud, that surprised you the most, do you think? It was a meeting with a member of an outlaw motorcycle club who used to work at Sydney Airport as a smuggler for a Mexican cartel. And what we could reveal in the program was that uh, Mexican and Latin American cartels are increasing their presence in this country, corrupting people uh, at our air and seaports. And he says they have senior people here on the ground, accountants, foot soldiers, who are basically managing and watching the safe passage of their cocaine into Australia. And it was a point that the Director of Investigations at the New South Wales Crime Commission confirmed and acknowledged that there is a presence of Mexican cartels in Australia and uh, they're doing their best to curb it. This story is fascinating. You've probably never seen anything like it before here in Australia. If you do want to watch it, ABC Four Corners, it's available on iView. Investigative reporter Mahmoud Fazal, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you so much, mate. Yeah, and we've got messages coming through as well. Someone says, if you've ever seen videos of the violence in South America over Coke, you know the misery that you're financing when you buy it. Look, heaps of thoughts coming through. Time to move on, though. Hack. Romantic relationships between superiors and their employees lead to fraud, corruption and misuse of public funds. Well, you can't spell heart without HR. On Triple Jack. For as long as people have been working together, they've been secretly banging. Sorry, but it's true. That is the reality of it. How do you describe work romances and how they make you feel? Are they exciting, nerve-wracking, awkward, disastrous? I guess they can be all of those things, right? They can make you anxious. What will your colleagues think? Will you get in trouble if bosses find out what happens? You know, what if it all goes badly? How do you keep working around the person? If you have dipped your pen in the company ink, as they say, 
Let's have it. How did it end for you? Maybe you're involved with someone right now. If you are, I want to hear about it. 0439757555. First, Jalila Medora's been speaking to some of you and you haven't disappointed. If you're looking for a Hollywood meet-cute, look no further than Ben. So my partner and I met working for the same company, actually as extras in a television ad pretending to be husband and wife. You could say it was destiny. Certainly turned out very well for us. We're recently married and, and have a baby on the way as well. But like many of you, Ben and his wife were a bit hesitant in the early days about telling people of their budding romance. We did keep it to ourselves. We were in the same direct team at work, so thought there was a bit of a conflict of interest there. And as the next story highlights, maybe keeping your crush secret is for the best. There was this one guy from this one team who I noticed was always very flirtatious with me. This is Rachel, which is not her real name. Apparently, it was a well-known thing around the workplace that he had a pretty big crush on me and was always talking about me. Here's where doing a sneaky internet stalk can really pay off. I realised that his last name was the same as my grandmother's maiden name and after a bit of sleuthing, found that we are actually cousins. Yeah. They aren't direct cousins, but still, ick. It ended up being this huge joke, basically, because apparently he'd been very um, descriptive in how much he liked me to the other co-workers. Ick, 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 ick. You know, whenever he would reply to any of my comments or post anything on my posts on Facebook or Instagram, the rest of the the boys from that workplace would all just, like, spam him with Sweet Home Alabama gifts and <laughs> stuff like that. It was pretty funny. We laughed about it in hindsight and we're, we're really good friends now. While Rachel's story had a happy ending, not every story does. Take Shane, which is also not his real name. No, I just had a Christmas party with the old workplace and, yeah, ended up shagging my direct manager and she wanted to keep going and I said no because I'd found out she had a fella. I think you might be able to see where this is heading. Yeah, she overloaded me with work, uh, gave me too, too many tasks for one person to do as well as uh, dealing with customers and keeping the store running. Things went from bad to worse. She then pulled me up on a performance review, uh, opened up that meeting by saying that nobody likes me there. So I replied and said that I quit because, well, if no one likes me there, I'm not going to work there. And, yeah, I'm not too sure if she stayed with her fella, but, yeah, I didn't want to ruin anything there and just walked away from the whole situation. It was pretty uh, cooked. Sometimes a breakup can seem like the end of the world, but in matters of business, the head really does rule the heart. Here's Georgia. I've had a cafe for about eight years now. I have just hired my uh, ex, ex-boyfriend. That might surprise you because things did not end well with these two. We dated for about three years. It was a shocking breakup. So terrible. Heaps of time has passed since that terrible breakup and they've worked hard at being friends. And Georgia says it was a no-brainer hiring her ex because he's a really good worker. Yeah, it's a bit messy, but it works. We're good friends. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Medora with that story, and I'm loving all your stories coming through about work hookups. 
Someone said, I met my now boyfriend of nearly three years at my old job where my brother used to work as well. We tried to keep it secretive, but our boss did find out, but he was weirdly okay with it. We both don't work there anymore, okay? There's someone who survived. Another person, I love sleeping with my older colleague. He's a mentor to me, better than my real boss. And because I help him out, he helps me out. Okay, right? Someone's experience there. Another person, I was friends with a guy I worked with for about a year before we dabbled in friends with benefits, both leaving to new jobs a while later. And bam, five years on, we're engaged and expecting a child. There are a lot of good situations that are here. And there's this one as well. I met my partner five years ago at work. We both had partners at the time. I guess we cheated on them. Yeah, I guess you did. I hurt someone I really cared about and it took me a long time to forgive myself. Now I wish I hadn't done it the way I did, but I'm happy and my partner and I are engaged. My ex has also moved on. It got a bit messy and I've had to pay for some therapy over it. But hey... I found real love. Wow. Okay. We've got lots of experiences. So what happens if you are in this situation now? Maybe you're dealing with it and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed. We actually have a love and relationships coach with us. Dr. Love, welcome to Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Is this stuff happening a lot more than we realise? Hookups at work? Because we're seeing on the text line, message after message, everyone's getting together. Yeah, absolutely. It happens a lot more than, you know, that's spoken about. You've got to remember you spend a tremendous amount of time at work. Dr. Love, are you still there? Oh, we seem to have lost to Dr. Dr. Love, but that's okay. We'll pull her back up. We've got so many stories, though, in the meantime. Oh, my gosh. Someone says, the only work relationship I have is with the door at knockoff time. That's someone there. Another person says, I met my wife at work five years ago. We still work together in the same team. The only problem is we talk about work too much outside of the office. That would be a huge problem. Uh, we don't love that. All right, we're going to try and go back to Dr. Love now. She is with us. Sorry about that, Dr. Love. You were saying this happens a lot more than we realise. Absolutely. So, you know, we spend a tremendous amount of time at work with the people like our colleagues and if you put people in, in close proximity to each other, they work together, they're having vulnerable conversations, they're actually got something in common, they're working for the same company, there's a good chance that there's going to be a romantic relationship happening. I guess we all focus on the bad stories whenever we talk about this, but by the sounds of it, there's some like people having a lot of success as well. It's working for them. How can you make it work for you if you, if you are in this situation? I think it, it can work, but it's the way you navigate it. So I think it's knowing the risks, I think, is going to be one of your first steps because depending on the organisation you work for, some organisations actually have a policy around having, you know, intimate relationships in the workplace. So you've got to be very clear about whether what the company policy is, for starters. Second of all, you want to be... You want to be sure, are you on someone that's on, are you being with somebody that's on the same level as you at work? Is it your direct report? Uh, we had that example that was played earlier that, you know, the gentleman was, was sleeping, uh, you know, friends with benefits with his direct report and it turned nasty. What happens is that it can turn nasty, but also can turn nasty for you with your colleagues because they would question your intention around doing that. Are you with someone of your direct report because you want to get promoted or there's something else um, behind the actions of you being with this person? So intentions are, are, 
need to be quite clear. And some of the people that jumped on and mentioned, you know, we didn't tell our boss and we hit it. It's always going to come out. So best to be honest, because then if you're thinking of staying with the company, the trust isn't severed. Like we, you're not causing trust. We got a lot of messages still coming through. Someone says, my best friend is secretly banging her boss at work, being close to yeah. nine years. That is a yeah. long time to be in that situation. What do you do, Dr. Love, about the power dynamics if you're in a situation like that, if it's with a manager or someone, in, you know, who's above you? Well, just even those words banging my boss, it sounds like no one else knows that she's doing this. She didn't turn around and say, my, you know, there's a relationship here. It's, you know, it's possible that this person is banging the boss without anyone knowing. Um, it's a secret. Who, you know, there's a lot of these instances that happen that people are having affairs as well in the workplace and, you know, they don't want to talk about that as well. I think the main thing is that there's conflicts that can arise when you're sleeping with anyone that is your boss or a direct report. How do you become objective, uh, you know, for a performance review? How do you, um, you know, give feedback around the type of work that you're doing if you're sleeping with that person and be objective around that? It's really difficult. Oh, my gosh. I'm thinking about the performance review now. That's so awkward, Dr. Love. I hadn't <laughs> even thought about that. Someone else on the text line, starting a thruple with a married couple, but we work in a very professional industry, so we're going to have to keep it very private, which takes a lot of the fun out of it. Someone else, I'm currently in the best relationship of my life, which started with the occasional sneaky pash whenever we were alone. That one was from Jared. Another yep. person, number one rule, don't screw the crew. Been there, done that. We split, but we're besties to this day and still work together. Okay, so yep. some people have had bad experiences. Dr. Love, what do you do if it does end in a really tricky way? It's a disaster. It's really awkward. What Do you have to find somewhere else to work? Do you just hope that it gets easier with time? It doesn't get easier. You've got to remember when you have a breakup, if you think of just a normal relationship, not a work relationship that turns intimate, when you're in a relationship with someone, you connect with their direct relate other relationships. So family, friends, you become intertwined in their life. If you think about doing it at work, you also have a work family. And so when you have a breakup, there's a lot of other opinions and, you know, uh, views around your relationship. So, you know, it's going to be, it can be painful. The breakup can be painful if you haven't set up the boundaries when you start. You know, if we're going to break up, this is what it needs to look like for the both of us. It is a conversation that you can have. Oh, so do you have any one piece of advice that you hope people take away from this, Dr. Love? Yeah, I would say um, only pursue a co-worker if you're actually serious about the relationship um, because intention is going to matter to you, your, you know, your co-worker and the team. Probably stay away from dating someone you have a reporting relationship with because the power dynamic in that could jeopardise the team productivity and obviously, you know, the, how the team feels about you. And probably the third one is don't hide the relationship. If you have to initially, that makes sense until you know you're in a relationship. But if you are honest with your manager and your colleagues, it won't erode the trust in your team dynamic at work. Okay. That's really good advice, Dr. Love. You are Dr. Love. Um, you've got the name, you've got the credentials, and we thank you very much for coming on Hack and breaking all that down. No worries. Thanks for having me. We've got so many messages coming through, like <laughs> so many, so many messages coming through. Someone says, hey, my name's Simon. I had a fling with a co-worker, which was fun, and we became friends. She then got back with her ex-boyfriend 
which was fine, but he was general manager of my dealership and she told him that we had slept together. Very awkward when he and I... We're at the Christmas party, I can imagine. Hack. There is evidence that there's been multiple accounts sold to people who simply can't afford them. On Triple Jack. Yeah, there's no group more into buy now, pay later services than young people. Australians under the age of 25 more likely to use apps like Afterpay or Zip Money than any other age group. And a lot of you tell us it's a lifesaver. You love it or at least you find it really handy. But some people get stuck with these services, and we've spoken about this a bit in the past, late fees, or they're signing up to a heap of different apps. They end up in these debt spirals. The thing is, these services have pretty much been unregulated. If you've got a buy now, pay later story, I want to know, have you racked up a heap of debt or is it something you love? It's the only way you're able to get by at the moment. Message in 0439757555. Well, today the government announced some changes to crack down on these services. They're going to be covered by the Credit Act, which means they're going to basically be regulated like credit cards. Is it going to make a difference though? Well, Dr. Julia Cook is a youth sociologist at the University of Newcastle and she's been researching these services for a while. Dr. Julia, welcome to Hack. Thanks for having me. What's your response to this announcement from the government today? Do you think it's a good move? Yeah, I think it's fantastic. So um, I my only criticism is that I would have preferred if the government were to regulate Buy Now, Pay Later fully under the Credit Act. And what they've chosen to do is is kind of a halfway measure. So they're regulating it under some aspects of the Credit Act, but kind of modifying it and having a bespoke regulation. So it's going to be really interesting to get some more details on what this is going to look like in the months to come and see, you know, how is it actually going to work? Yeah, because the government was actually looking at three potential options for regulation, right? And we did speak about this at the time. They've kind of chosen the middle option, so not the strongest, not the weakest. Um, you were hoping for maybe something a bit stronger, um, but you've done quite a bit of research in this area. What, what kind of problems are you seeing in terms of young people specifically? Yep, so the research I've done in this area um my team and I have done a survey of young people in the Hunter region, looking at how Buy Now Pay Later interacts with other credit products. We've spoken to young people and we've done some work with youth workers who are you know, supporting some of the most vulnerable young people. And so we found like very much what you were saying at the start of this segment that you know, for lots of people, Buy Now Pay Later is absolutely fine. It's a good kind of form of credit for them to access. They can access smaller amounts of credit than they'd be able to through other means. Um, so it can be really positive. But we've also found some some kind of comparatively negative stories. So as you've mentioned as well, um, some people having multiple accounts, we've found even people having multiple accounts with the same Buy Now Pay Later provider. I found one person who had opened up an account with the same provider in her own name, her maiden name and her husband's name and had three different accounts with the one and then also other accounts. So the fact that that can happen is is not great. Um, there's also been um, you know people opening up accounts in other people's names. So we found one case where a, um, a young woman who was underage, I think she was about 15 or 16, had opened up an account in her mother's name using her identification and debit card and her mum was incarcerated at the time. So, you know, obviously really kind of undesirable situation there. So 
you know, when these things go wrong, they can go very wrong. Yeah. So we do need to have some regulation. It does sound like that. If you are one of the people, though, that really relies on these products, use them responsibly, it's all working fine. Are these changes going to make it um, a lot harder for you to access them? Probably not. So, again, we need to see the detail. But um, generally what these changes are going to do is bring in uh, better kind of dispute resolution and hardship provisions. They're going to bring in fee caps. So if you do, you know, have some late fees, there's a cap to how much you can accrue. And they're also going to be bringing by now pay laters under some aspects of the responsible lending obligation framework, which basically means that the buy now pay later providers, they're just going to have to make sure that the the line of credit they're essentially extending to people is appropriate for them. So if people have a history of being able to pay it back and it is something that's appropriate to their needs and how they're using it, then they really don't have anything to worry about from this regulation. And I guess a lot of it as well will be the implementation of it. Um, that has to be uh, a careful process as well, I would imagine. Uh, you're saying like we just have to wait for the detail. Um, is that correct, Julia? Yes, yes, definitely. So I'll be really interested to see what the detail looks like. One particular thing to look out for is, um, is how the how the regulation would potentially manage the the kind of duplicate accounts across services. So right now, if you open up one account with Afterpay, one account with ZipPay, one account with with BrightPay, like any of these other providers, they can't see each other. So, you know, it's possible to have duplicate accounts across services. And I think that some kind of measure that makes that, that visible and also makes these accounts visible to kind of legacy financial services like banks would be helpful. Just say someone isn't having small amounts of credit extended to them in lots of different places and, you know, racking up small amounts of debt across lots of places and getting into trouble. For sure, though. I think that's an area to look out for. We'll we'll be definitely keeping an eye out and we'll be in touch with you as well. Dr Julia Cook from the University of Newcastle, thanks very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.